This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning. Hi, everybody. My name is Alexis Boylan. I am the Director of Academic Affairs at the University of Connecticut's Humanities Institute. And it is my very great pleasure today to be interviewing um, Valerie Haggerty. Um, And I'm going to let you, Valerie, introduce yourself. I I think it's like better if I I like it. I find it interesting what people choose to say about themselves. So I'll I'll sort of let you introduce yourself. I'll just um, say that uh, I'm very excited to have the conversation today. And I think it should be really interesting. As I said, this is part of the programming and sort of pre-conversation that we're having around the exhibition, uh, Seeing Truth. And I did want to note that um, this exhibition and the programming that has gone along with it has been generously funded by the Luce Foundation um, and also supported, of course, by the Humanities Institute and um, the Office of the Provost at the University of Connecticut. Um, So with that, uh, Valerie, do you want to tell everybody who you are? Sure. Thanks, Alexis. I'm Valerie Hegarty. I'm a visual artist. Um, I work within the traditions of sculpture, painting, and installation, and sometimes all three at once. Mm -hmm. And uh, I work between uh, New York City and uh, the Catskills. and my work gener- in very generally deals with memory, history, and place. As I said, I'd like people to sort of introduce themselves because I'm always fascinated at what, well, first of all, what artists call themselves, because I do think that now there's all of this sort of other vocabulary and, um, you know, artist maker, um, uh, and also do people add the word sort of visual and sort of what is your medium and all that sort of thing. So, um, uh, and I do think that 
One of the nice things about technology is the ability to sort of allow people to sort of self-define in ways that I think historically, and we're going to get to this idea of truth and memory and that sort of thing, sort of what is the truth of who you are when you have to introduce yourself? So I'm going to start off with the first question. Your art seems in constant conversation um, with art of the past. Can you talk about your relationship to history and memory and how that impacts your visual um, production? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think a lot of my work is drawing from early American paintings and sculpture. A lot of like uh, Bierstadt landscapes, uh, Thomas Moran, like of the Grand Canyon, um, the Hudson River School. And it didn't start out as wanting to make some sort of political statement about the times or the environment today. I was drawn to those images because uh, in the house I grew up in, we had knockoffs of what looked to be early American landscape painting. Mm -hmm. And so those are just like imprinted on me. Um, I, my grandparents are from Ireland and Italy, but we, growing up, we didn't have any imagery from those countries. It was all these um, landscapes or uh, maritime works that you would, and I grew up outside Boston. So you see these images a lot mm -hmm. uh, in public buildings in Boston. And also we grew up in a home that was modeled after a historic home, but was new. Like it was made in the, um, maybe it was made in the late fifties or something. So we had, and I don't think this is uncommon in homes around Boston is we had like fake artifacts from the Revolutionary War. Like we had a Revolutionary War rifle over the fireplace and a bed warmer and like a Paul Revere tea set made out of like steel. And so when I was younger, I thought those were like ours, like our okay. family artifacts. <laughs> so I think I, I've just had a longing for like an origin story or something. And it's I don't know, it seems very American to like make up your origin story, but <laughs> like very Vegas or something. I like the idea of like making artifacts uh, that have something to do with my story, but also the time and place that I'm making art in as an artist in the, in the United States at this time. I'm pulling this familiar imagery, but uh, altering it to maybe uh, comment more on what's happening today, like socially or politically. I don't think of myself as a political artist, but I think you said in our last inter interview, like all art is political. <laughs> I didn't realize it would be read so much that way in a way. And then it's kind of just kept going in that direction. I mean, I guess you can't like comment on things happening in the, in the news without it being political in some way. Right. Um, right. So I think I just have like a desire for history. Um, I always loved old houses and like seeing when people like go in and renovate and some of my early work looks like renovated yeah. rooms that somebody's tearing back into the walls, but it's all made out of paper mache. It's all a recreation. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, we grew, I grew up with these recreations. Um, my dad actually bought a bunch of the paintings in the hardware store. Like there was an artist uh, that had a studio in the hardware store and I guess my dad said he, the artist went out of town and the guy was selling his paintings <laughs> because, he, because he owed him rent. But, but I always loved these like uh, 
they kind of look like the Alps or the Rockies. <laughs> like, um, so I, that's where that, that's where that comes from those, those images. And then once I started working with them, you know, I learned more about them. I don't really remember learning about Manifest Destiny in high school, although maybe we did. So as I read more about them, I mean, I always knew they were used to define like, uh, like an identity for America, the, the wilderness, the, the Western landscapes. Um, but by working with them, I just learned, learned more about that. And I don't think people need to know everything about art history or about everything about how, how these paintings are thought of. Like my hope is they can enter the work just by seeing this kind of familiar imagery and having it broken or like altered in some way, like they're able to, to enter it at that level. Like what does it mean to see a broken painting in a museum? So I'm going to back up and ask you two questions because I'm actually, I have to say, I'm like fascinated at this idea of there being antiques or family heirlooms around the house that are not family heirlooms, like that are not, they're both not antiques and not family heirlooms. I loved when you said that you wanted to, them to be, like you, you wanted them to be something more than they were and that you wanted this origin story. And I, I just, I find that so fascinating in this idea of sort of creating a visual that makes the narrative complete or makes something sort of make sense but I want to pull back like was it your mom or your dad who was buying like if, if your dad bought some of these paintings like I'm just I'm fascinated at where the replicas came from and who was bringing them in the house and then and at what point were you like like, did you ask them where these came from? And they were like, oh, like the store. Was that a heartbreaking moment for you? Or was it just sort of like a knowledge that was always sort of there, but you were playing with it in your head as a kid? I can't remember actually, because we used to play with them. I remember there was like a gunpowder horn on like, with like, with leather. Mm -hmm. You know, my guess is my dad bought them or the I don't know if the house came with some of them, <laughs> um, Amazing, but right. I do remember like we had like an addition put on and there were these big, huge beams in the ceiling that looked like big old, you know, a big old yeah. beam. Yeah, and okay. I remember my dad being like, that's actually like five piece boards like put together and sanded and look what a great job they did. You don't, can't even tell. I, remember, I just remember being like, yeah, that is cool, you know? Like, <laughs> so I love his pleasure at the fakeness of it like this sort of the like look how amazing they made it look like like they just sort of like the technology of making it look real I mean I also think it's charming that he's sort of like encouraging you early like before you maybe even conceived of yourself as an artist like this is how you make things like materiality you know of, of objects yeah he he was always like he he's still alive but he's always like fixing things and like his workshop is like insane. I'll have to send you a picture, but he, he's really works with all kinds of materials just to fix things around the house. Right. Um, and I think like as, as immigrant children, like there's this desire to be American because um, they were, they both were from poor families in Boston and like this desire to like be more successful or wealthier, like, or like cross like right. socials 
social uh, levels. And these are the things like wealthy people have in their houses. They have like paintings of clipper ships and right. Um, it's very analogous to, in many ways, the way that those Hudson River schools paintings initially found so much appeal because, again, it was about sort of bonding together people who might have come from different classes and different ethnic backgrounds and sort of creating this manufactured vision of, uh, of cohesiveness, of an Americanness, like that this all fits together, this all makes sense. This, you know, that that even though the country is so, you know, was increasing, getting increasingly large, like there's a, a way in which there's a sort of a visual connection between all of these places. So it's 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 actually very um, it's fitting that your parents would in sort of trying like in, in adopting many of those same sort of desires use this as their visual vocabulary. Although it makes me then very interested, Valerie in particularly how many then of your, particularly the works, they're, they're three-dimensional, but they're meant to mimic paintings um, that have curdled mm -hmm. or have like, I mean, you, you mentioned this before, like the, the images that are broken. So much of your visual representation seems to suggest almost the sort of hollowness or the lack of cohesiveness or the lack of stability that, in these images, because it seems like what you're you're talking about is that at, at in your home and with your family, there was a sort of this way in which these images created and that you then as a child were using the pieces to create a cohesive narrative of history and your family and the landscape. But I would say that your art to me Again, I, I think curdled is the best word to use for some of those images where it literally looks like they're wrapping into themselves and warped. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what happened in the story or the narrative that brings the warping in for you? I mean, I think when I was in grad school, <laughs> I made these videos of like me and my family dressing up like we were like, pilgrims like going around <laughs> but I, I was thinking like my whole identity is based on like nothing is <laughs> based on like uh plastic <laughs> plastic <laughs> objects that are about a myth like that's my identity that's and now it just was like oh no <laughs> so I had this panic about it I mean I guess I want to with the warping like I've been thinking a lot about funhouse mirrors lately like is the image skewed or is how we're looking at it skewed? We're just reflecting each other. Part of the warping too, I think about like when an artist makes a failed drawing, they crumple it and throw it away. So I'm thinking about like this giant hand like crumpling. Nature's supposed to be in the image of God, but God's like, this is a failure and like crumpling it up to toss in the trash. It's an epically devastating commentary on the United States and ways in which 19th century visual artists attempted to create this idea of an America, which is really, you get into this in your, I mean, this is really a conversation about whiteness and about whiteness and the way in which there is whiteness permeates that landscape and then perhaps curdles it, that there's something there that feels inauthentic. I'm interested that to me as like a white person. So somebody of color has got to have that reaction to a whole other 
degree. Right. It brings to mind an artist like Robert Duncanson, a 19th century African-American artist who fully embraced a kind of Hudson River style, a visual vocabulary, made these absolutely epic and beautiful images. But there's always this sort of conflict about sort of what, what, are, what is his racial positioning? I mean, he felt this during his own time period. How much of landscapes then is somehow a commentary on person and racial positioning and Mm -hmm. citizenship and belonging. But that actually makes me want to pivot to this other idea because gallery spaces and indeed museums, it seems like function is this really crucial part of both your, so much of your work plays with this idea of what we're supposed to be looking at in a museum or what we're supposed to be protecting in a museum. But also so much of your work seems to be pulled from the sort of vocabularies of preciousness and importance, Mm -hmm. you know, canon making that museums do. So I guess I was sort of wondering if you could speak a little bit, um, and this is sort of pulling us back to the Seeing Truth exhibition and ideas that we're playing with, what is your relationship sort of to museums? Both as an, I mean, I think as an artist, your relationship to museums is always fraught, right? Because you you need them and then, but you're also a visitor. You're also a person who goes to museums. That's how we interface with work. But so on the one hand, museums are where we go to see both art of the past and art of the present. And on the other hand, these locations have increased, have always been, and are increasingly understood as centers of mythology, of racism, of classism, of, you know, homophobia, like ableism, all of that, but also of like disinformation, right? Like this idea that museums are creating this vision of this is the most important art, or this is the story of this or that. And, you know, science museums and historical museums do the same sort of teaching. And increasingly those teachings have been suggested to have been massive disinformation sort of distribution centers, right? Like that, 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 you know, you go in and you learn a story that is false, um, that is only half told. Um, So I was wondering sort of how you negotiate museum spaces vis-a-vis a truth that you both want to speak to and that you want to see about U.S. history. So sort of like if you could just talk through sort of where you see museums for you right now, both as locations where your art could be, but also as stories about what is the truth of us um, in in knowledge making. Yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, (laughs) I I, I excel at multi-part, super (laughs) dense. Yeah, no, you're not the, I think, actually, I think if if, if there's people who are watching all these interviews, they're going to be like, how can anyone answer any of these questions? So, so maybe just talk about sort of, let's, let's like break it down. Like, what is your relationship to museums um, as spaces of knowledge and truth? Like if I, if I feel like I want to know the truth about something, I probably wouldn't go to a museum. Okay. I probably like look at news sources. I probably do internet research, look at news sources um, that I trust. I, I do think it's, important when the museum is inviting diverse artists, contemporary artists to go in and reconfigure things to 
create their own project to insert into the collection so that we get that we get that perspective from the current times and from a diverse population. Right. Um, I think, you know, the, the museums are all like reorganizing their American wing. I mean, for years, but that will probably just be ongoing. Um, I think of the museum more like an archeological site and like what archeologists find is through the lens of their times and like what they're looking for basically. And so the contemporary artists are important to be, be brought into these institutions that look like they're the stories immobile or you know really fixed, um, so they can sh they can shake it up. But as an artist, like I'm in, I get more information about what other artists are doing, or like you know if you want to read all the literature stuck on the wall, like the museums try to tell you more of the story. I only learned this like when I took art history when I was much older, but there's a lot of like, I feel like there's a lot of subliminal messaging <laughs> going on. Um, I, I sort of enjoy museums just for the aesthetics. I don't get really caught up in like what they're conveying to me. Okay, so I find this fascinating because your art is typically shown, not typically, I mean, it exists in all kinds of locations, but you've been collected by most like an enormous amount of major museums and your pieces have then been in shows and they have functioned very much as sort of um I know you hesitated to sort of that you you have complex feelings about being a political artist but I'm interested then because so often your art is shown in the context of disrupting that museum space so I, I think it's interesting that you're like I don't go to museums to like sort of get anything, but then your art is actually functioning as a way, I think curators are pulling in your work as a way of disrupting the authority of that space. So, I mean, do you think your work is disruptive or not really? Yeah, I think it is. Okay. It's like, a, it's a disruptive in this very like easy to access way. In the Brooklyn Museum, my piece Fallen Bierstadt had been in the American Wing for a long time and it's just like a broken Bierstadt painting. It looks like a Bierstadt painting that's warped and broken. And that's disruptive. It's right next to an actual beer staff, the storm over the Rockies. And there's so much um, time and money goes into restoring these, these works that they never, they are just seem timeless. And that's part of the story being like immobile. But these works are not timeless. <laughs> They're decaying like in front of our eyes, but you never see that. So I think just shaking that up a little bit. And it also gives gives people pause to like consider what they're looking at so that it, it stops them and makes them reassess what they're looking at and they can take that on to the other works. I mean, I think museums is like the best context for my work. I guess saying like, I don't, I don't go to museums for certain things. I do, I do really like when there's contemporary artists inserted in, in historic collections. I do really like going to see contemporary artist shows and they're, they're always in museums or galleries. Those are the spaces we're given to get our work shown. So like trying to figure out how to work within them. Like my work is stronger actually in a museum with a historic collection than in a contemporary gallery. 
That's interesting in tying it together to sort of your stories about thinking about your own, the home that you grew up in, where paintings are sort of lived with, like sort of the, this idea of there being a more, a more organic sort of home for them. And galleries are notoriously like, you know, I mean, just so white, so white walled, so, you know, that they're, they're meant to sort of just focus you in on the art. I mean, your work and particularly your more recent work moves more towards installation, but have you ever sort of thought about like an entire sort of all room installation or does that, does that not appeal? Um, no, I definitely, um, I mean, the closest I came was like doing the installations in the period rooms at the Brooklyn Museum. So I didn't like recreate everything, but my work was inserted in three different rooms. And so that that was interesting to to work within a context that was already there, not the white wall context. Because right. period rooms, if that would be the place I would think that that there was some authenticity, like this is what the room looked like, this is what was in the room. But when I worked on the installations, they were like, oh, this might have been in a room at this time period. Oh, this is actually a recreation from the 70s of the floor. <laughs> and one of the rooms, the Cupola House, the Brooklyn Museum bought the interior. It's like a, from North Carolina because it was, uh, the town couldn't afford to restore it. And they moved the whole interior of the Cupola House to the Brooklyn Museum. And then in the meantime, the town got more money and now they don't have the interior to this historic house. So they replicated the interior. Okay. So like the actual uh, historic site has a copy of the interior. And that's when I was like, oh yeah, like it's all fact and fiction, just like thrown together. It's all fact and fiction thrown together. And it's all to create this. I mean, it, it's about sort of creating this idea of history, right? That we could immerse ourselves in. I always think that the sort of corollary is like the time travel, like um, novel yeah. or something, you know, which, which are often seen as sort of, you know, so sci-fi or so fantasy, but then museums really do sort of promise this, like if you step into this space, we're going to help sort of transform. And I always love also how those period rooms are often, they can only really have a couple of people in them. So there really are trying to like make you, you know, go on this journey. But yeah, um, in the Brooklyn Museum, you can't go in them. They're just walled off with glass. So you right. can only look through the window and the door. So right. it really controls your viewpoint, but you get that feeling it is like a time capsule. Right. And um, at, when I did my installations, I asked the art deck curator, like, did you get any like hate mail about mm -hmm. my project? And right. he, he said, no more than usual. And I was like, well, what, <laughs> what's your usual hate mail about the period rooms? And he's like, it's the same people every time they hate if we change them. Oh, right. right. Be the same every time they come. Right. And I thought that was really interesting. The Seeing Truth exhibition is working so much with the American Natural History Museum. Um, and I think that they find the same, like that those dioramas are like, they can't change the, like th those are, um, you know, and when they have changed them, I mean, most recently they tried to change one, the indigenous peoples and, you know, to put more information and to make it, you know, to, to make it not so racist and make it more, actual information about tribes and you know what information was fact and what information was 
perhaps misunderstandings, but they got a lot of hate mail about that. Too. I mean, there's a lot of controversy about that sort of the, you know, like, should you just tear it all down? Should you try to reconstruct it? But um, it's, I mean, of course, like sort of like the squid and the whale, like, they, you know, like that's, that's a total fantasy sort of scenario. I mean, they think they've seen, you know, suckers on whales and they've seen, you know, ingested, but, you know, but it, I mean, I think that I feel like sometimes like the whole, all of New York would shut down if they did anything to that diorama, just because oh, it's definitely. So <laughs> fundamental to, you know, I mean, there's a whole movie about it and all kinds of literary illusions and like it's just you know that that these things become part of other histories that then you know that, that, that then they have their own fragility and preciousness attached to them yeah, so there's a lot of like nostalgia around those yeah been, yeah that are of course made to theoretically be this sort of factual you know like that are sort of meant to be these sort of knowledge conveyors but Along these lines, I was wondering if you could actually talk about your piece, or your piece, the Silver Skeleton series, Full Skeleton from 2019. I was interested in how the work came about, and and I know you're gonna you're gonna prickle at this, but sort of um, what truth are you speaking to in that piece? No, no prickling. Okay. Um, so the so the Silver Skeleton came about because. The Winterthur Museum, which is a DuPont mansion with like over a hundred period rooms, mm -hmm. all American. He collected all American objects. I met the curator, Stephanie Delamere, and she <clears throat> invited me to come to the museum. And, you, you know, they showed me around and uh, to do some sort of project like responding to the museum. And the museum has just is overflowing with decorative arts. Um, they have a huge ceramic and glass and silver collection. And I had been thinking about this previously, just the materials being used in the artworks and thought this was like a good opportunity to do something about silver. So the truth is like bringing in more of the story of where the silver comes from and the human cost of mining silver. And I wasn't familiar with the history per se, so I was reading more about the history of the silver trade and the, um, the mines in Bolivia and Mexico and how they were like bringing in enslaved Africans to like work the mines. They're like incredibly dangerous, incre incredibly poisonous, and they would enslave the indigenous peoples that live near the mine, but then all those people would die. And so they have to go out a bigger radius and then all those people would die. And the only reason they started having better safety at the mines is they had basically run out of workforce. And that's not something I like, I personally think about when I'm in a museum, which is kind of shocking actually. <laughs> so uh, the fact, you know, that the end product is this like very expensive, very collectible, object that the wealthy are collecting it's like they're just you know is it is very literal in a way the piece is like human bones combined with a silver serving set so like we're basically just collecting like the bones of these miners it was also like interesting that about the miners themselves they would make these sculptures in the mines i think it was called they they worshiped like the god of the underworld um when they were in the mine, I think it's uh, Il Tito maybe. And they would make these effigies that were like half human, half goat. They look like these monsters 
and they'd be in the mines and they would go before they go down when they went down there they'd give it tobacco and alcohol and um, things to appease it so that they they wouldn't be killed in the mine but when they were above ground they like were catholic so it was like really interesting and then so when i was making the silver set it you know it has this like macabre quality but it's in keeping with kind of these effigies they were building also so that that's like just trying to insert like this other part of the story in back into the museum. And so I wanted to put the silver set back into the Winterthur Museum. You know, you when you do when you do stuff like that at the museum, some people are not going to be on board, some people are going to be on board. It, it wasn't something that could easily happen. And they might put it in when they do a show that's about like putting a critical eye on the collection. That's kind of a great context for it is to put it back into a museum right. collection. Right. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a fabulous piece. I mean, I also think that um, increasingly it feels necessary to speak to how much collecting has gone on in museums. You know, I think that natural history museums, of course, get the and anthropological museums um, rightfully. Um, bear more of the sort of brunt of this dialogue, but as spaces that are essentially masking genocide and masking it on this whole sort of like an aesthetic level and as a, a knowledge making level like that, you know, let us not look at this aspect, let us look at what is important on this aspect. And I think that uh, what I love so much about the Silver um, Skeleton series is it's sort of I mean, it is this very visceral piece that is sort of saying, like, when you look at silver, what you are looking at is death like that. That is and you can pretty it up and you can make it. And, and again, I think I, I think the other thing that you do in that piece that I find so um, disruptive, let me let, I'll just use that word again, is then reminding us how often silver then is like used to eat things. Like, so it's about this sort of process of ingesting this mm -hmm. death and ingesting mm -hmm. this, this genocide, mm -hmm. um, uh, this, you know, um, of, of capitalism, of, of greed, um, but also of racism um, and, you know, a, a sort of colonial um, uh, empire building that I think, I think that piece is so interesting because again, it is also very aesthetically pleasing like it, it, it's like, it, you know, you want to look at it be, in the same way that when you go to museums, you often want to sort of like look at beautiful silver and look at ceramics and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I was thinking about that recently because my last show, like some of the some of the works were like kind of look like a decaying oven or whatever. It's kind of like got an icky factor. And I was thinking like of uh, the work I've been making recently is like really leaning on like the romanticism to right. draw you into the story. Cause that's why we love, or if we love these paintings, there's like this very romantic quality to them. Yeah. And so in a way, like when you do a commentary, if it's too off-putting, like people might not even get pulled into it. They, you know, they can just totally disregard it. Yeah, and basically using the language of like how these images and objects were created in the first place to make something very aesthetically pleasing so that you almost don't realize you're getting this truth. <laughs> right, right. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. 
At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, and I do think that there have been, I know the Worcester Art Museum and my colleague um, Elizabeth Athens did this piece of trying to make these connections um, with the history of slavery and so much American art and the sort of ways in which museums have done so much work to distance these, these, these pieces from their origins or from the moment in which they're created or the people who created them that, and, and how, how important it is to do the work to bring those things back together again. Um, I, I teased you about like, you know, sort of the prickly stuff, but I do find that artists often have complicated relationships to the idea of truth. I think also those of us who are of a particular age and who in many ways came up intellectually in a postmodern moment, then also have this sort of like, there is no truth, truth is relative, like, but that's something that was ingrained in a lot of our you know, college thinking and, and beyond. But so much of your work plays with ideas of mythology and truth and history. So I was wondering if you could actually just talk about like, what is your relationship to the idea of truth? But then more broadly, this is my multi-tier question. What obligation do you as an artist or your art have to truth? Or do you think that truth is something that like you, you don't really have any truck with it, that, that your story is that art, art can do other things that it doesn't need to be, to even have a relationship with truth. Well, I have the initial um, response you're talking about, like there is no truth, like nothing is really objective at first. And then I was thinking, well, what about like Russia bomb Ukraine? Is there no truth there? And then like suddenly it seems like it gets really dangerous to say there's no truth. When I think of how I get bits of the truth in the world, it's in this poetic way, almost like the cabinet of curiosities, we're doing a better job than we do now. Like mm-hmm. it's through different things that are related that um, or maybe not related that you form connections and that there's some truth that comes out of that. I think with my work, because because I'm using these paintings or objects, I can't really separate them from some of the truths about them. I do love work that has no agenda. I don't, I'm not like going in with an agenda necessarily, but I do think work can be whatever work wants to be. But because I'm using these images, this content is going to come with it. And I need to acknowledge that. And I, I want to be on the right side of history. (laughs) Like, so I, I don't want to perpetuate racism with my work. Like I want if anything, just like illuminate it, or I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm picking paintings that are very generalized in a way 
it's not like this is like this particular person's experience at this time. It's like this is a clipper ship. <laughs> um, so I, I don't want to go into specifics because I don't feel like as a Caucasian artist, that's how I experienced the history. I experienced it more through like these images and museums, but I do feel like I have to acknowledge that that content is coming with the image. And then that's ends up being what I'm playing with anyways. The, the truths I'm trying to tell are maybe the truths that are not immediately revealed in the work, like with the silver skeleton, like mm -hmm. right. there's not a plaque on the next to the silver canteen saying like a hundred people died like making this amount of silver. Well it really called questions as to why we look at it and what I mean all of a sudden it pulls in a whole mess of ideas that in fact so much of our culture goes to great lengths to hide and you know just even to be very sort of banal about it but like how many people are actually damaged by each package that arrives to our house you know like in the sort of grand scheme of people who are you know the environment and labor and all this sort of thing you know it's not the same thing but we're not encouraged to think of costs in a broader sense um and 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 how much of the things that give us pleasure come at these tremendous and you know unconscionable costs yeah um, and i think you know we we're hit with that information more and more um i think there can be an overload too like yeah. it doesn't matter what i do or right um but you know artists i mean mostly are liberals are like trying to like do the right thing and but we also yeah we also want to be comfortable <laughs> I actually was really drawn to that you're sort of like that you you are conscious of wanting to be on the right side of history, which I mean, I love that phrase. And that phrase has been so interesting for this project, because, of course, if you sort of suggest that there's a right and a wrong side of history, in some ways you're negating that there's a truth. But you, so like, you know, like that you want to win and, and that winning is that that's the truth if it wins or if that's the right side of history or that sort of thing. It's very grounding to hear you sort of say that these are ideas and these are worries that preoccupy you're thinking about your own artistic production, that it is important to sort of speak to all of the pieces that are coming in that are influencing you and, and that sort of thing. I can show you one behind me. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So this is like a clipper ship painting, like turning into a shell. So I was thinking about like, you know, aesthetically trying to make it really romantic and beautiful looking. But when you look inside, the ship is actually going down into this like whirlpool. Oh. <laughs> so it's like, I wanted to pull the viewer into the kind of the beauty of it and everybody loves shells, but then, you know, the clipper ship's upside down and getting sunk, right? getting sent down the spiral. Right. Um, well, I'm thinking then about sort of the, particularly in the U.S., this very devastating history of moving bodies across water in ships um, for slavery. I mean, it's just, yeah, no, that piece is great. I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm, 
interested in how light it is. Like uh, you, you seem to be, it looks like it should be very heavy, but it's, it seems very light. Yeah, because it's partly like paper mache and then part um, kind of this epoxy clay. A lot of my work is extremely light. Oh, that's fascinating. I would actually not have thought that from having seen your works. They actually seem very um, uh, uh, heavy. Yeah, like when people come to pick it up, they're always shocked, like the guys who come to move it. Here's another clipper ship kind of getting absorbed into the shell. I love the barnacles on it too. I think that's such a, like the sort of idea of the aging. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Well, I, again, like um, almost like trying to make something that looks like an artifact. Right, right. What I like about those pieces too is that in some ways, because of the shells, they sort of, they have this, they, they exist in this sort of liminal, they could be in a natural history museum, they could be in an art museum and sort of pointing out how the, the spaces even between those designations are very um, artificial, that objects always exist in this sort of liminal state. And then we feel the need to define them and place them and put them in sort of trajectories of knowledge and history. And yeah, that. yeah, it's true. Cause I was like, oh, where would be a great place to show these? And so it's like, oh, would it be the Natural History Museum? Would it be like the mat? One of the questions we are asking everybody to speak to for this project is one of the instigator items that um, uh, uh, I want to say instigated you or provoked you. So did anything strike your fancy or make you mad or uh, uh, draw you in? I was immediately drawn in by um, the Henry Moore sculpture that looks like a shell so that the objects there's like a real shell and then there's this little, it might be bronze. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't look very big. Um, at first I thought it was a horn, um, like that an indigenous, from an indigenous mm -hmm. people, like sometimes they make the horns out of the seashells and it looks like some kind of indigenous artifact, um, but it's actually titled, let's see, Standing Figure Shell Skirt. So it, it actually looks like a little woman with a dress. And I just thought it was like a very poetic looking object. And it because I'm working on these seashells too, it pulled me in. And then I think, you know, because you're talking about truths, it was like, well, is this telling me some sort of truth? I'm just admiring it for its formal qualities. Right. And then I'm like, well, there's a woman and it's being related to nature. So are, is this perpetuating this like, women are like, are like nature so we can like dominate both of them. Did I just get sucked into that? Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> like you can just analyze it in different ways. But um, I was pulled in because I am working on, in, in a way it's like, maybe mine are like culture meets the seashell and this is like nature meets the seashell. I mean, uh, yeah, like um, women meets the seashell, maybe the, the colonial narratives are more like male centered. Um, right. right. No, it's interesting. I mean, we, we're still doing research on the piece, but it appears that he did those for um, an exhibition installation. And so then I clicked and I read that it's, yeah. it was called the hall of mollusks and mankind, which is an amazing title. I know, I know. <laughs> and it said his piece was put in the center in a vitrine. 
And right. it's funny because I was just in the show um, that traveled. Uh, it was last at the um, Crystal Bridges, but it was a, called In American Waters. And it was about right. these, the history of these maritime paintings. But I had, I think I had one of the only sculptures, which was a painting turning into a shell. And they put it in the middle in a vitrine. And so I thought that was kind of cool. Oh. <laughs> You know, I'll have to, we'll have to go talk to the uh, people at the museum, see if we can maybe get a photograph of um, the Henry Moore in, in situ and maybe get yours. We could do a little comparison side by side, but um, very cool. All right, well, I'm gonna ask you the last question, Valerie. It has been amazing to talk with you. And so um, in keeping with my hard questions, we're not gonna end on like a light note or an easy <laughs> question. So one of the ways that I've been ending these interviews is asking people to tell me one truth that you know, one thing in the whole world that you know is true, and it's a truth that you feel committed to. And I was wondering then if after you tell us this truth, what evidence do you have for this truthful statement or this truthful belief that you hold on to? I ran through a lot of, uh, a lot of things and I, I thought, I'm just gonna say that Russia's bombing Ukraine. <laughs> Um, the evidence I have is, I guess, all from the media and news sources that I trust, and then also from my community of artists. Like, I believe it's true because they all believe it's true, and it's being reported from sources I trust. Like, at first, I was going to say, like, you know, that I die. And then I'm like, but, but I don't actually know that. I just thought I'd pick something like that's happening right now that seems important to acknowledge as truth. Right, right. No, I mean, we keep it a really open-ended question because we want people to sort of, again, sort of speak to what they, what, what they want to do with that idea of truth. And, 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 and also in, in your particular moment, what truth is the most important for you to articulate? So, yeah. Yeah, that seems like the most important. Yeah, well, and I think you're also speaking to sort of your, your role as being somebody who, that, that what it means to personally speak a truth. Um, uh, which I think is really important and interesting too. And certainly something that the whole project keeps sort of pulling back to, but. Yeah, it's a really interesting project. Yeah, I think so. I'm, 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 I'm excited for the show to open and excited for the audience to get to hear about your art and your uh, ideas and that sort of thing. So thank you so much, Valerie. This was amazing. Yes, thank you for you. and um, it was lovely talking with you. You've been listening to a special Seeing Truth episode of the Why We Argue podcast, Future of Truth edition. Many thanks to Toby Napolitano at the University of California, Merced, who handles our sound. And thanks to our sponsors, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.